Hello and welcome to The Intersection of Things, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss the stories of how technology and social change collide. Morning, Marinella. Hey, Ruth. Um, well, morning. It's like 12.30 a.m. here in Vancouver. We switched. It's crazy. I mean, yeah. I'm having coffee whilst we podcast. This has never happened before. And for the first time, I'm having an alcoholic beverage, uh, otherwise known as beer. So if I'm extra chatty today, it's A, because I've been awake forever, and B, because I'm beering. So this shall be fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to experience what it's like to podcast first thing in the day rather than the end of the day. <laughs> Welcome to my life. Well, So what are we going to talk about this week? Health. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was fun. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, good no, stuff, we're talking about uh, health and how technology, the internet, all of these devices that we use, how all of that, basically the body and measuring the body, how all of those things collide with the various intersections that we like tackling here. Yeah. I mean, I was pretty inspired to tackle this conversation because I read an article. There's actually an interview with Professor Kiara M. Bridges. She wrote a book called The Poverty of Privacy Rights, which admittedly I haven't read, but I read an interview that talks about the book and um, it's called Do Poor Women Have Privacy Rights? And it was really, really interesting. It was talking about how women in America, like especially poor women, obviously that was the, that was the topic. Mm-hmm. In order to get prenatal care, they have to be submitted to a whole bunch of surveillance, like lots and lots of questions about their personal life. And then if those questions flag someone as seeming like risky or, you know, anything that seems unacceptable, then they get social workers following them around for the rest of their pregnancy. And they might even not be able to gain custody of their child. What? Yeah. Like they said, she said in the in the article that sometimes like the hospital would just say they would keep the baby until the air was cleared no way and that includes questions not just like do you you know take drugs or like drink too much but questions about people's sex life and how many partners they have and she said that in her experience dealing with investigating this healthcare system middle class upper middle class women could just refuse to answer those kind of questions and say this isn't relevant and kind of carry on but that like in america there's this idea that you know poor people not really deserving like let's let's check they deserve to have a baby basically So basically, it was a way to make sure women, well, basically women had to prove themselves in order to receive any support from the government or the benefit of, you know, having some sort of social security um, in order to carry out their pregnancies and have their babies. Aren't like the U.S. super like pro-life, at least politics wise, this kind of... I don't know. I I think this is a little bit of a contradiction, but what's new? Well, the definition of pro-life, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's basically just anti-abortion, isn't it? I mean, yeah. there's the whole thing that it's the, the only point at which they care about mothers is at the point of pregnancy. But then once the baby's been born, there's no further support offered, you know? like. Yeah. And if your baby's born and it's black then good luck. Hmm. Yeah, but like the point that I was really interested overall was something that I've been seeing a couple of people making in different articles. She was claiming that privacy rights in general are a concept that only privileged people get. That poor people never had privacy. And yeah, I read something I think by Privacy International, who are an organization based in London, and they wrote a report recently. And one of the points they made in it was very similar to that. They said, if you look at how many cameras there are in the London estates, that means that poor people 
people like always have cameras pointed at their homes, their literal environment, not just when you go out into the street or go into a park. They're being watched in their general, like in the space in the middle of the estate. Right. And that if you're always being watched whenever you leave your home, like you literally do have a camera pointed at your door. The idea of privacy is not something that's just like it's not part of your life. And she was mm-hmm. making the same point that for a lot of people in America, like you're always being watched. It's not just, you know, NSA surveillance that Edward Snowden revealed that's an issue. It's this, like, we keep talking about this, but this concept of, like, all-pervasive surveillance, that, like, your social worker and your doctor are watching you. Like, everything is, are you an acceptable person in our society? Yeah, and, and you've mentioned before that this goes beyond beyond class. I mean, it's definitely, it's it's uh, attached heavily to class and soci- uh, socioeconomic status, but also, I think you've mentioned before about how people who are in disability um, are often watched to an extreme to the point that they cannot even advocate for disability rights because then they are considered to be able you know if you're able to advocate for yourself therefore uh, you're able to work so um, yeah they're under constant surveillance yeah both situations are kind of giving people a catch-22 you know in this system it was that the woman either has to answer all of these really personal questions about her life but if she refuses to answer these questions which might open her up for surveillance then she's under surveillance for you know resisting these questions and saying well you must have something to hide and that's the same thing like you can't opt out of the system because if you try to do that then that just flags you as being suspicious so you end up being watched either way like just watched with your consent or watched without your consent yeah and this is done obviously um through a bunch of different mechanisms i mean uh pregnant women i think is that surveillance done through like medical examinations and being how are, are they being quantified in a certain way or is it just mostly cctv and street surveillance or well in this case it was talking about social workers so like physically intruding into the spaces where you raise your kids it's also talking about like people in the neighborhood reporting on you and that kind of thing so it was much more about the physical surveillance right the reason i was asking was because um it is i think it's important to look at the different mechanisms that surveillance and health kind of interact like you said physical and external surveillance is one yeah and i just i just remember that the other thing was of course like police in the neighborhood like right yeah so environmental basically environmental surveillance so neighborhood and like i was saying i recently have had some interesting situations with you know applying for visas and things and this is in the canadian context uh where part of the process is to have a medical examination and I was very interested obviously in the privacy aspect of this because basically all I'm told is that I have to have a medical examination done by only certain certified physicians but they don't really tell you what they're looking for so you show up and you get blood urine x-rays physical examination I I was telling a friend sometimes I I didn't know maybe I was missing something but I didn't know what the blood was going to be used for until I happened to just ask for the detailed invoice because obviously you have to pay out of pocket and for the blood test it said HIV test so I didn't know I was being tested for HIV specifically Wow. Again, this is this is all about and, and obviously I signed consent forms, but I signed consent forms saying, you know, yes, I'm giving these samples to these people 
to for them to make a decision and it just cascades from there right it's um i also learned because i read the fine print or the print i mean i really have no option to say no because if you want certain outcome then you just have to say yes to everything which leads us back to consent but the the print basically said this clinic and the thing that um the government canadian government uses to assess your medical stuff uses a software made in Australia and it's possible that some of this data <laughs> might be stored in Australia or like might only be accessible you know it, it they want to reassure you that your information is safe and it will only be accessible in like lawful quote-unquote context but I'm just like all of a sudden it's like okay so so wait what now Australia which I have zero interests uh, or relationship with uh, at least at the moment, now might have my DNA. I like what? So, anyways, surveillance again has different kinds of mechanisms. One of them is the physical, the way you're observed, but also like when you're talking about the surveillance of the body from like immigrant communities, brown people. Like I don't know if if I had a different status, if this would be different. But you know, you just basically you have to put your hands up and give up any expectation of privacy at the most essential level you know you will be probed and tested literally test and you don't even know for what yeah that's a little nugget that i know that not a lot of people know and yeah it seems ridiculous like what what could your health and your blood have to do with immigration like well to paraphrase a thing that i read in those forms is to ensure that the health and safety of canadians are not compromised however they they just asked for this now not 10 years ago i don't know it's 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 um it's interesting yeah but um, you might as well just say everyone in canada should have regular checkups like if you're concerned about the health and safety of canadians then you should check everyone regularly to check no one has a disease that could yeah and, you know and cause... as i was sharing this this story with a friend um she asked well can they do that can they discriminate and i was like well any process to let someone in or out of geographical boundaries is a process of discrimination uh it is sorry like it 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 sucks it's fucked up and the way that that discrimination is done is by quantifying the individual in in a series of points one of them in canada happens to be health again i don't know the rubric for it but it is i mean i'm asked my age and based on my age i'm giving some points like if i was a year older i would be i would have fewer points so yeah i mean is that i mean that's definitely legal is that ethical like it is again textbook process of discrimination but also a process of um quantifying the individual and you know making systemic decisions based on that and again this is this is happening in first world countries right now with people you know listeners <laughs> yeah so yeah. i want to i want to go like on a half segue a small yep. miniature segue um so there's this whole massive situation going on in the uk at the moment about descendants um people from windrush have you have you heard about this uh no okay so basically now i'm I really hope I can get all my facts right. I think it was in the 60s. Beep. Post-editing correction. This was 1948 to early 70s. There was a lot of immigration from the Caribbean, which a lot of people came on a ship called Windrush. They're called the Windrush Generation. We were invited specifically by 
by the UK government at that time to help rebuild the country post-war. That's also like clear fact invited. A lot of people came. They did lots of jobs like nursing, you know, things that were really important at the time. Now, a lot of those people are um, in their 60s or 70s. People who were teenagers came over with their parents who are British citizens. They were British citizens because of like historical Britain in the Caribbean stuff, um, ownership or whatever, and now are being deported. And a series of things happened, including someone who, Albert Thompson, was refused cancer treatment because he couldn't prove his immigration status, even mm. though he's 63 and had worked in the UK his whole life, like paid taxes his whole life. And then, you know, what is positive is that people were actually outraged about this and there was loads of media attention and then a lot of other people who had been victims people who had been deported or taken to Yarlswood which is our like awful detention centre and a lot of these stories came out and David Lammy who's a really good MP has been very consistently outspoken and fighting for these people and has been saying like don't you dare call them immigrants these are citizens they're British citizens they have rights and all of that stuff and I think it's really really good that there is media attention and that things are changing and in fact the Home Secretary resigned at the weekend as a result Amber Rudd Amber Rudd yep so she's gone but it's interesting to me that like at this moment this is the thing that the British public is angry about but what about everything else that's fucked up about our immigration system like are people going to get angry about the fact that you have to earn a certain amount of money to be able to be married to an immigrant in this country. What about all of these thresholds where you have to earn a certain amount of money to be able to have children? Like, there are some really ridiculous restrictions. I'm just like, sometimes I don't understand why it is that, like, at one moment, people seem compassionate and empathetic. And there's Mm. this kind of, like, wave of, no, this is wrong, and, like, let's stand up for these people. Like, I remember there was a moment in the refugee crisis when people were really compassionate about Calais and loads of money was was poured in and people like gave loads of equipment and tents and that was great and then it was like people stopped caring you know for for three months we were really compassionate towards refugees and then moved on so I don't know what that is I hope that perhaps this moment is making people realize that the entire concept of a hostile environment as our prime minister calls it is like terrible and there cannot be you can't have a compassionate country with a hostile environment like those things are never going to work together sorry that was well off health but well i mean i mean to to bring it back again it it all comes back to how governments and people in power sometimes i mean we might get into this employee uh, employers anyways people in power use the quantification of the body to as an excuse basically or as a rubric to i don't know back up their discriminatory and racist and sexist policies yeah it's um it's way easier to say we didn't let you in because you don't make x amount of money than saying we didn't let you in because you're from the wrong country i don't know this gets me kind of riled up and it's not just a beer but it's (laughs) it's just the way i know the body is literally torn apart and quantified and then all of a sudden racism is okay again not cool yeah that's that's all true i was also thinking about the interesting thing with the health aspect is that it was someone being denied cancer treatment that became the spark that ignited a national conversation and like a change and i think that that was really interesting because i think you know that's a, a joint hatred of cancer right that that like means like 
people could suddenly feel like actually no I can I can understand this this situation because you know I've lost several people to cancer and I think most people these days have like you know it affects a lot of people and so when you hear a story about someone who's being denied cancer treatment who's worked in the UK who's an old person like there suddenly feels that like wait this is so clearly wrong that people can empathize there and then you can just like expand the empathy beyond that like if you can care if you can care about this like I was saying to my husband the other night you know great people are saying this person's been in the country for 30 years like how could they deport them and I'm like cool so what about 20 years someone's been in the country 20 per years you shouldn't deport them and if they've been in the country 10 years then you know you shouldn't deport them like can we can we just actually stop talk stop deporting people like I mean it's interesting the thing that you say about cancer because I think it's very hard to at the moment and knock on wood that this doesn't change it is very hard to apply the concept of meritocracy to cancer when you look at how much money people make education even health like diabetes and obesity and stuff like that people tend to flock towards meritocracy basically you didn't take care of yourself if you only ate better, if you only exercised more, if you only did this thing, um, same with, with money and stuff, oh, if you only went to school, completely disregarding all of the systemic impediments that people might have not to pursue higher education. Anyways, um, it's harder, I think, for something like cancer, like you said, that all of us know someone who has been affected by cancer. All of a sudden, you can be like, yep, the one thing that doesn't discriminate is that, so maybe that's why? I don't know. It's it's really hard to, to apply the meritocracy of like, you didn't self-care enough, which is yeah. sadly very common. And they have this idea recently, it keeps being proposed, of denying people medical treatment if they have, you know, obesity or whatever, as and saying as though that's your fault. Um, and... Yeah, talking about systemic things, there are so many systemic reasons why people have many health issues. Like, it's not about life choices, you know, it's about what the social conditions that force people into making certain life choices. This is sadly something that it's not getting better. For example, in the States, you have a lot of the talk of um, healthcare and the quote-unquote Obamacare, which is basically, you know, or would you give the opportunity uh, of people to be insured and if they have cancer or break their arm, they should not go into debt for that. And all of that basically is based on the idea like, if you care for yourself, you will never have to pay a lot of money because you will never get sick, which at the core is a very neoliberal ideology. And I recently read this really, well, not recently, like a couple years ago, I read this um, really good article by Lori Penny. I think it's called The Life Hacks of the Poor and the Aimless. Nice. We'll put it in the footnotes. So just listeners go to what is our website, theintersectionofthings.com slash episodes, and, and you'll find it there. But anyways, this article is really cool because basically said, you know, how in the left, quote-unquote, in progressive circles, there's a lot of talk about self-care. So the article makes the argument that self-care, sometimes it's kind of like a tool of neoliberalism. And the thesis basically says, and I quote, if you're miserable or angry, or I would even say sick, but like if you're miserable or angry uh, because your life is a constant struggle against privation or prejudice, the problem is always and only with you. Society is not mad or messed up. You are. So basically, if you are depressed, it's because you're not giving yourself enough self-care. You're not going to that yoga class. You're not going to that the gym or therapy. Or, you know, if you are obese or if you are quote-unquote whatever society deems to be, you know, you're not sufficient 
to be performing here it's all because of you and i think that outsourcing of the responsibility of the badness that happens is a very neoliberal value in yeah. the way that it just places the blame on the individual individualism also goes both ways if you're a hero it's all because of you but if you sucked also just because of you i read a thread on twitter the other day that was talking about how businesses big companies who say like oh let's try and deal with mental health in the workplace and they bring in a specialist and everyone sits in a room and says yeah we're super stressed because we're overworked and you know <laughs> we're working 12-hour shifts and um you know our, our place is racist and sexist and i'm being harassed every day and then they're just like well what you need to do is download this app meditate and think about your favorite color yeah mindfulness um, which is, yeah, so basically they were saying that, that companies are trying to use like mental health, um, what's it called? CBT, uh -huh. cognitive behavioral therapy. Like, but the kind of therapy techniques, which obviously are useful to replace fixing structural problems in the workplace. Like, why are people stressed? It comes back to how people are always trying to look at the surface level. Well, why if you just breathe deeply, be calm, focus on just one problem at a time, but we <laughs> are still going to ask you to work a 12 hour shift. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, I don't know, this is one of the other ways in which, like, the body and, and health is used to be at the service of profit, quote-unquote, the pursuit of productivity. Which brings me back to talking about oh, um, pregnancy and surveillance, yep. because the other interesting report that I was thinking about when I was reading this first one about surveillance of pregnant mothers, the former was about surveillance by the state. And then the latter that I was thinking about is a report called The Pregnancy Panopticon. Mm -hmm. And it's really about surveillance of pregnant women, pregnant mothers by companies. And it's a joint report, which I think is, is just like a really nice thing because it's by a reporter called Kashmir Hill. And then also um, a technologist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation called Cooper Quinton. And I like the way it's done with journalist style, you know, a storytelling style of like the first half, which is about her saying that in her pregnancy, she, you know, experimented by downloading all of these pregnancy tracking apps. Like everything, 20 different apps that are supposed to, sorry, like when she was trying to get pregnant and then also um, during her pregnancy. So she downloaded all these like fertility apps that tell you like, when is the best time to have sex? And then at the same time, EFF wrote about the actual security details of these apps. So she wrote about the experience and also like how she felt learning about the research, what it was like to be using all of these different things. And he's like going through everything and saying like, this is their security vulnerabilities. It's a really interesting report. I I like the style. Yeah, so obviously they found there were a lot of security vulnerabilities in these apps. A lot of them don't require any kind of password or any kind of security to get in. And yeah. what people are doing with these apps is you're entering in really, really personal details. You know, you're telling them when when your period is happening, but you're also saying things like, when did you have sex? How did you feel at the time? You know, what have you been eating? You know, what is your mood like? You're trying to update on all of these really, really specific details to tons of different companies who have this and I mean sorry <clears throat> just my mouth got really dry hold on a second don't log dryness into the app <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like one of the apps that they mentioned, it said that you put this details and it was stored on your phone itself. You know, this record of all the times you had sex so that 
any other app that asks for permission to access your um, your information could theoretically also get hold of this. So if someone mm. wanted to maliciously, they could just get a diary of all the times you had sex for a year. And and so that was quite intimidating to read. And it was it was also this point about how the companies are just going like in many of the cases they were using that information to advertise. Like that's the main thing mm. that they're doing. These these are usually free apps. There was one app in particular that they mentioned called What to Expect which signs you up for a lot of email marketing without even a confirmation. Just using the app, you get all of this marketing for baby products and so forth. And I've I've read separately a lot of research that says that a new baby is the best time in an adult life to get someone to change the brands that they use. And that if someone uses what? a new brand during pregnancy, they are more likely to be committed to that brand for the rest of their adult life, which is why there's a huge competition over new mothers per purchasing power basically so you're trying to have a baby and then all of these companies are just desperate for your attention wow and then they're all like sharing this information like it pointed out that like facebook and google analytics are also receiving this kind of information you know at least that you're using the app so then they know that you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant and there's also the infamous case about target this place uh, in this chain in the United States that basically, you know, years ago it came out that Target outed a teenager's pregnancy to their parents because based on the purchases of, of this person, um, soon-to-be parent, they sent some sort of package or some sort of notification, like, congratulations, you are going to be a mother soon. And, you know, the father was something like, oh, funny that they're sending us this thing on the mail. And turns out, lo and behold, teenager daughter was pregnant. Yeah. So data data outed the pregnancy to the parents. The thing is, like, I mean, EFF overall described it as a grim view of women's health applications. Mm. I haven't really gone into a lot of the technical sides of it. There's a lot of stuff about unencrypted authentication cookies. So I recommend if you're interested in that and want to read about security, um, check out the report, the Pregnancy Panopticon. But I was going to bring up that they they make this concluding overarching point about how there are privacy and security trade-offs that need to be considered. And I felt really frustrated reading that line, not not with EFF specifically, but with this is the thing that we're constantly being asked to make. Like, you have to trade privacy versus convenience. And we're always being asked to do that, right? So if you want to use an app to track your fertility, then you have to give up something. And it seems like, why are we always being forced into making these decisions and then it comes back to that same point about responsibility like why is it our decision and our sacrifice you know you always get those like bros who complain if you if you complain about facebook they're like why don't you just leave right yeah and it's like yeah why why is it on us to be forced into making these sacrifices rather than saying these companies should have high standards of respect for their customers. The thing is like when whenever you're getting something for free or for very cheap, you are the product being sold. I'm butchering the quote, but something like that. I, I think it's just interesting. For example, for the for the uh, pregnancy panopticon was it? What's the name of the article? Yep, it's interesting panopticon. that they even use the the word panopticon because I was reading this other article called Foucault's Fitbit. Uh, Foucault, who's who basically came up with the whole idea of um, well he adopted the idea of the panopticon the panopticon was this jail that was uh, designed in a way where like a central imagine a tower in the middle that has direct visual access to every cell 
like the cells are put around the tower like that was the architecture of the panopticon basically so you so the guard in the middle could be looking into every cell at any time and people in the cells could not see what the guard was watching so basically Foucault kind of like adopted that idea of the panopticon of being observed to you know society in general and how society is watched by either the state or the powers that be and how because society knows they could potentially be watched at all times, they modify their behavior. So uh, this article, Foucault's Fitbit, um, written by Jennifer uh, Whitson. This podcast is brought to you by mispronouncing names. So the Fitbit, which is another mechanism, it's this little watch sort of thing. How would you describe it? Like a watch that kind of tracks your steps and your activity on the daily and sets certain benchmarks for you to be quote-unquote healthy or reach certain goals. This author kind of argues that that's kind of the mechanism of like modifying your behavior and um, a mechanism of like watching the self in order to reach certain benchmarks that are set well by someone right generally health administrations or like governments or like the system that be and all of a sudden is not on governments to tell you to be fit it's on yourself to watch yourself be fit um, and to log everything into this database that you don't know if you, uh, you're going to have access to. Fun fact, uh, in 2011, there was a leak of, uh, or not a leak, but like some hack where Fitbit, like um, personal information such as when people have sex and what times of the day and like how many steps so-and-so took was available online. I don't know. It's interesting how this whole idea of surveillance related to health is not just about health, but it's also about the the notion of improving one's life as a mechanism of control. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, I mean, and to your point about selling data and stuff, the author uh, Jennifer Woodson mentions how with in her research on the Fitbit, what she describes as like function creep, people will not continuously spend on multiple Fitbits. So they start selling data, which is what they started doing, kind of advertising sort of selling data. Also, other software companies were trying to use this mechanism to adapt it to other purposes. For example, employers could use the Fitbit as a way to track employees and their whereabouts. Um, There was also talk about certain software people trying to use this device, the Fitbit, to communicate information about a kid to their parents. So this other new form of surveillance. So yeah, the function creep is what what she calls it. And yeah, and it all goes back to selling data. And if something happens, like the 2011 privacy leak, people just go into like, well, you had a choice. You could be fit in a really easy way. These are the risks. It's all your fault, sucker. Well, geez, there's so much to go on there because I could just go on another side rant about just the evils of parents tracking their children and normalizing surveillance. But that's not what this episode is about. (laughs) I was stay tuned for parenthood. Do you remember that whole story about the tracking app Strava? There's a similar situation and I was really thinking about how a lot of these companies claim that it's not really surveillance or it's not really dangerous to your personal privacy because they anonymize everything. And this running 
dating app Strava had an option where you could share your your data publicly. You could share your routes that you go running in, so people could you know say, oh, that looks like a nice route around London. I'll run that route too. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people had this to be on public without realizing it, and they decided that they would share all of the mapping routing information as data that could be accessed by everyone you know to do research on and that sounds great you know you gotta love what sharing information what could go wrong yeah and it, it was like you know this is all this is all anonymized so we're great right it doesn't have any yep. names attached to it apart from when when there's someone running in a neat square in a desert where where there shouldn't be anything and there were a mm. whole series of things where people found out that they could figure where military bases were because people <laughs> were running in very precise routes that were about the size <laughs> of a military base and maybe then along a long line to another square base. And all of this stuff where people are trying to keep these places secret. That soldiers were just, you know, accidentally using this app with the uh, public information on. And it's... It's not so secret if there's only one person in an area, then it's not anonymous. And the whole idea that, I mean, I actually fight back about the idea that you can ever call anything anonymous. You should really say, like, pseudonymous, because people Mm. are individuals and have enough unique traits that a lot of the time when you say you're going to, like, anonymize medical data, people have unique traits. So they have things like... People who are of a certain height with this illness in this yeah. area, that's that's this person. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that other common saying of like, give me the first five lines of your credit card statement and I'm going to tell you a lot about you. Yeah. Like where you live, what you like. Anyways, yeah. And I'm generally in favor of helping researchers, you know. There are a lot of really interesting projects that are done with open data and, and that's great. But people do need to understand. I'm just gonna... Am I always just talking about consent? Because I'm like, people need to understand what they're giving their data for and you need to like say, I want to contribute to this research. Well, if, if there's anything that I'm... If not learning, at least realizing in a way that I hadn't before is how consent seems to be one of the essential flaws of the way we are living today hashtag everything into sex yeah yeah it's just like the awareness of what you're giving up and really just creating a culture of like okay what is choice if i'm forcing you like if we go back to the medical stuff for immigrants or for refugees if i'm forcing you to give up your data to this other government potentially in order for you to be safe or to acquire a status of safety quote unquote safer status yeah is is that really informed consent? Is that really choice? And before I forget to the Strava point, um, the app, there's another intersection on that, which is, uh, I think it was in the UK, Glorious UK is giving us a lot of examples of, of tech gone wrong. I'm sorry. So sorry. Hey, it's great. No, but like, uh, one of the things that I've, I've heard is that some governments, and this might not just be in the UK, I think uh, in the US, some of these things have happened too. Governments are looking at data from apps like Strava, because Strava also used for cycling so they look at the data of the most uh, cycled streets and then they use that data to inform their design of new bike routes or new bike lanes in cities the problem is guess who can afford strava and devices and bikes a very specific population guess who needs a bike and might not be able to afford not only 
a mobile phone, but like the data that requires you to track that or the interests on tracking your daily commute on Strava. So if, if cities are making decisions based on these apps without noticing that the, this data is super biased towards certain kind of population, we are entering just yet another form of intersection, right? Like who's being measured also for what purposes, not only in the bad side, but also on the good side. Who's going to get the benefits of this? Who, who has access yeah, I think so. we talked about yeah. something really similar on the festival episode where I was talking about when you look at a data set that facts aren't neutral, you have to look at why do you have this data specifically? Uh, who wouldn't have been able to be part of the data set? It's mm-hmm. also reminding me, I'm going to give a shout out to a podcast called Third Wave Urbanism. I've Yay! listened to a lot. It's really good. I've been binge listening. They had a whole thing. I would just finish listening to yesterday, the episode on lighting, and I never expected to learn so much about streetlight. They talked about how even the placement of streetlights you've got to consider basically talk about it as like a gendered issue and say that mostly city planners are men and they think about their needs and so they place streetlights where they think streetlights should be placed Mm. and then talk about how like this is one of those kind of endless cycles of you only consult with certain people so you only build things for certain people which perpetuates their privileges and so forth I never really thought about all of these kind of jobs that there is a job of someone to decide where lighting goes and who has that job what kind of person are they actually influences the shape of the city the safety of the city mm-hmm. and unique cities and rhythms and who who tr- travel through public space and into private space and semi-public private at night who designs that interaction who's being protected who's not who's you know anyways data and who who has a who has a say on that is, is it's huge especially in you know the design of cities but yep this is one way again strava this is one way in which uh we have to be very careful in the way uh class and tech and public policy intersect talking about data and um policy making do we do we have time to uh jump into that story about caster semenya that we wanted to talk about yes um oh dear caster go for it because this was another big story in health that really made us feel like we needed to tackle this subject So this week, uh, we heard the story that the International Association of Athletics Federation announced a new policy establishing that there should be a maximum amount of testosterone in women's middle distance running. Oh my god. Okay, sorry, yeah. (laughs) Ongoing reactions from Marianella. I'm basically (laughs) saying that if... If a woman, this is this is a quote from um, a Guardian article I read about it, but like I just want to really listen to this line. If a woman exceeds the limit of natural testosterone, she must take drugs designed to lower it or enter the men's field. And then it, then it goes on to say that this is um, really directed at one athlete in particular, Casta Semenya. Just want to point that out. Natural testosterone. If her yeah. natural body exceeds the limit of natural testosterone, it is natural if it's her body, full stop. I know I sound like a broken record, but this whole idea of how quantification and science is being used as a mechanism to implement certain ideologies. In this case, the ideology of the binary of genders and what is a woman, what is a man, and what's acceptable for a woman to compete. Um, I mean, I needless to say, this is fucking awful. But it's not the first time that Castor Semenya has been probed, literally, by the bodies that be, the uh, policying bodies that be in, in um, athletics. And also another shout out to 
now. Dr. Cornishito, uh, who used to be, well, who was my prof instructor, we looked at Castro Semenya as a case study in this class on sports media and popular culture about how sport um, and health was being used as a way to basically represent to the to the people what the ideal man and the ideal woman look like and how a lot of that especially nowadays is quote-unquote backed up by numbers and science this whole like what's not measured doesn't matter but what is really matters and i think one of the takeaways from that class when we actually were looking at at castro semenia's case was how in athletics where castro semenia competes there is more variance between the first and second place in men in testosterone levels than the first and say fifth places of women yet women are tested for that you know and and no one's testing men of how much testosterone they have I and mean, they do test for doping they do test for like unusual spikes but that's not about their gender you know there there it's let's be very clear on that they're being tested for doping they're not being tested for this very gendered component of their discipline which is proving themselves to be of the gender they they are and and i saw people saying that it's like it's like she is doping because she's you know so strong and it's just like you you can't talk about someone's natural physique as though it's a cheat just because you don't like it i think there's also the point about michael phelps this whole point that michael phelps has obviously he's a great athlete but he also has certain physiological advantages and there's some really cool youtube videos that you can look up because he's you know he's been analyzed and celebrated for this but you know like his hands are bigger than the average man's size uh of hands that his flexibility you know the way his joints can move in order to allow his body to be a little bit more aerodynamic or fluid dynamic and move faster through the water. So there's a bunch of physiological advantages that he has and was born with. It's really hard to get even with the best training, but nobody's putting a cap to that. Nobody's measuring that and saying, well, you're too much of a man. You cannot compete. And no one's saying he's not a man because he's so good, which is what they're saying to Castor Semenya. They're saying you're too fast to be a woman. And exactly. Why is this like, definition of womanhood being applied to her but they wouldn't do it the other way around i mean the options that these bodies are putting uh for women is to undergo either treatment or surgery that's invasive that is potentially it's gonna it's gonna lower their quality of life it's just the benchmark for these women to compete is just awful and let's not even start touching um the the theme of trans athletes it's it's just this whole other i don't know i yeah i mean in my co-working space one of my desk buddies pointed out that by asking castor to take medication you're asking a doctor to prescribe drugs for something that isn't needed like basically no self-respecting doctor should do that why would you tell someone to take drugs to alter something that is literally just who they are because some body of athletics thinks that their body doesn't match the idealized white definition of womanhood yeah and she might challenge 
challenge it, you know, she might legally challenge this decision, but then the onus is on her to spend money and put together a case and all of this, which has been done before with, um, like, a, they had a previous decision along these lines, and then it was challenged, um, I think by an, uh, a runner from India who had a, a similar situation. And then they've made this decision again. And, like, once again, it's, like, on these women to stand up to this male-dominated space and challenge... Mm-hmm the definition of what it means to be a woman that they're putting forward. I think we've talked about a lot of stuff. I mean, we we had further notes to talk about prosthetics developments, but I think maybe we should save that for another day. Thank you, Ruth, for (laughs) talking about health and bodies and everything. Yeah, thank you, Varunel. This was really interesting. So um, out of everything we talked about this morning slash evening, what do you think you're going to take away from it? Uh, The concept that privacy is now or that the concept that privacy should be considered something that we're treating as a privilege i think um we talk about privacy all the time but just the idea that say people who have less economic resources or are in that quote-unquote lower classes don't have any right to privacy i think it's fucked up and i think we should bring back privacy as like concept of it as a right and actually look at it as a right and legislate and like talk about it as a right rather than like something that only certain people are allowed to have so i yeah i'm taking that with me what about you um well i really like the point that you brought up um with laurie penny's essay and also with the uh, foucault's football article and how those two work and this idea of how much we take on the responsibility that if we're failing it's or like, well, if we're sick, it's because of our own personal faults rather than because of anything structural. And I, I hadn't really thought about that idea. I probably had internalized the same concepts of like this self-responsibility, this like, you know, I have to maintain my fitness and eat my vegetables and all of that stuff. And I think I really want to read that article and think about the ideas in it. It was a great episode. I had a lot of fun. Thank yeah, you so me much. Too. It was very good. Um, and listeners, beat it, beat, beat, beat. Special announcement. Your dear podcasters will be at RightsCon very soon. Yeah, so in Toronto. if you're going to be there, yes, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Earth. Um, <laughs> so if you're going to be there, um, and if you're listening to this before RightsCon happen, which is mid-May, basically, um, yeah, give us a shout out. We yep. might ask you things. You can come and say hello. Tell us if you like the podcast. We, we will be in the same physical space for the first time since we started the podcast, which is really exciting. Yeah. Whoop, whoop. Yes. So you might even see photos or something. I don't know. We will be in <laughs> our can't human can't promise forms. anything. Yes. So really looking forward to that. Let us know. I don't know if you're going to be there or yeah, whatever. You can... If you're running a panel, if you're running a panel, let us know. We're going to come and see you and... Yeah, we're doing a panel too. We're going to be doing a session with our awesome friend Cynthia and it's all going to be about messaging and NGOs and how we communicate. So that's really exciting. Um, yeah, if you want to talk to us, you can reach out to us on um, at Things Intersect. That's where we are on Twitter. Or, as you know, uh, com, which is where we also have all the footnotes for these episodes. Um, we want to thank someone for the intro-outro music. David Mark Hucklesby. Perfect. Thank you, Ruth. Yeah, we only, we only talk to people who have three names. It's our real... Or three words in their name. Yeah. I only have one name. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. I only have one. (laughs) Yeah, wait a second. (laughs) Three part names with the rhythm. Yeah, we like that rhythm. 
festival. Yeah. <laughs> thank you all. Uh, until yeah, next thanks. time. Thanks for listening to the Intersection of Things. Um, oh yeah. Share, like, subscribe. No, that's YouTube. Leave us a review and go on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud. Yeah, we're still a baby new podcast. Give us some love. Tell yeah. your friends about us. Bye. Bye. <laughs>